Sometimes it pays to finish last. It was uh, maybe three months ago, Isla and I were looking for something to eat and, and going to get some coffee. It was about 5.50 at night, and we went to a little mom-and-pop coffee shop. I'd never heard of it before. And we rolled in there, and we could tell they were just about to close, but really we just wanted a couple of cups of coffee. And so ordered that, and the girl told us, hey, um, we're going to be closed tomorrow, Saturday, we're going to be closed Sunday, and we're going to be closed Monday because it was a holiday weekend. And she said, so if you want anything, any of these pastries here, if you want any of these sandwiches, they had a whole bunch of sandwiches. She said, any of this fruit, she said, just take it. It's like, what? I mean, for free? She said, yeah. She said, we're going to have to get rid of all this stuff. And so we paid for three or four dollars worth of coffee, and we took fifty dollars worth of other stuff out of there, and we gave some of it away, and we enjoyed some of it. But sometimes it pays to to be last. I mean, we were the last customers, and she's like, "We got to get rid of this stuff." I think about a time, and this is several years back, uh, when our kids were small, uh, three and one, I think, and we headed to the airport to catch a flight and. If you've ever traveled with small kids, you know it is not fun, especially air travel. I mean, security lines and getting on the airplane and your kid is screaming and everybody else is looking around. I mean, it's just it's not fun, okay? Um, and we got there and we were running late. In fact, we were running so late, I was already starting to think, I just hope we can get on the next flight. Well, we got in the airport terminal and there was the counter area, and I'm really good normally, let me say this, about waiting in line, about not cutting. By the way, school starts tomorrow. Remember not to cut in line, okay? I'm normally very good about that since Mrs. Sales class in kindergarten until today, but this time I cut in line. I was like, we're so late. I just walked right up to the counter. And I said, we're supposed to be on this flight to Memphis that leaves in five minutes. And she looked at her computer, and she said, oh, dear. Picked up her phone, I guess she was calling down to the gate, and she said, okay, they haven't closed the doors of the aircraft yet, I'm going to try to get you on. Clack, clack, clack. You know that special clacking sound that those computers make? Clack, 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 clack. And she's like, oh, she said, your seats have already been given to someone else. And I'm like, clack, 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 clack. She said, in fact, the, the, the plane is full, I'm going to have to put you guys in first class. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I said, I, I said, works for us. <laughs> so we got to the plane, and sure enough, there we were in these big, wide leather chairs with lots of leg room and getting offered all kind of food and beverage and entertainment options. And the sweetest part, I think, though, was the people who actually paid for those first-class tickets, the looks they gave us, you know? <laughs> what, you got an infant and a three-year-old? And I was like, yep, <laughs> sure do. Hope you all enjoy the flight with us, with the Dabs family. But sometimes it does pay to finish last. Jesus talked about that, and he talked about it in terms of something very special, the heart of the kingdom, uh, in terms of serving others. Mark 9, Mark 10, we've been on a journey through the gospel of Mark, the Son of God we're getting to know in this series. So in Mark 9 and 10, he talks about this. He says in Mark 10, verse 31, Many who are first will be last and the last first 
And in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, obviously, this is not Jesus giving you a travel tip. How to get bumped up to first class, show up late to the airport, be the last one. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this idea of serving, of choosing lastness. And that this is a kind of a character quality in the kingdom. Um, coming last, it doesn't come naturally to us, and it is certainly not something that we are used to seeing in our culture, is it? I mean, the powerful people, the great people, the celebrities and the billionaires and the politicians and the people with real influence in society, they're the ones that get the red carpet rolled out. They're the ones that get the first class service. They're the ones that everyone seems to want to please. Well, the kingdom comes along, the eternal kingdom of God, and it just turns it on its head. It reverses it. And Jesus made this point very specifically, a very pointed um, observation he is going to make in the middle of two situations, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10. Here's the first. It was a travel tip, I suppose you could say, because it involved a road trip. The disciples and Jesus were traveling about Galilee. They land in Capernaum. And as they had been journeying, Jesus kind of was up front and the apostles kind of clumped together and kind of lagged a little bit behind so they could have a particular conversation that they didn't want Jesus to overhear. Verses 33 to 35. After they arrived in Capernaum, probably at Peter's house there in Capernaum, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, So guys, <laughs> what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Okay. He sat down, he called the 12 disciples over to him, and he said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and become the servant of everyone else. So obviously they didn't want Jesus to know what they had been talking about on the road because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest, who was top dog after Jesus in the kingdom. They weren't debating about what's the best way to serve street kids, uh, take care of the poor, best way to evangelize people, or how they could better organize the ministry schedule for maximum effectiveness. No, it was all about who is the best, who is the greatest. So they didn't want Jesus to hear that. And seriously, guys, you think Jesus didn't know what you're talking about? <laughs> I mean, you are traveling with God, okay? You're traveling with God in the flesh, omniscient, knows everything, can read your hearts, can read your thoughts. He knows exactly what you are talking about. And so Jesus gets them together and says, guys, I think I need to tell you something. Once again, greatness in the kingdom is finishing last. It's serving others. And so surely they got the message, right? Yeah, okay. Situation two. Very next chapter. Here we go. Uh, then James and John, these brothers, sons of Zebedee, they came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Jesus said, what is your request? Now, 
Let me insert a thought here. I don't know if this happened. I have a strong feeling it did, okay? Mark doesn't record this for us. We don't know if Jesus ever actually rolled his eyes during his ministry. But I'm pretty sure he did. And I'm pretty sure it was right here because he knows what they're going to ask. Nothing surprises Jesus. So, teacher, we've got a favor. And Jesus, I roll. Okay, let's hear it. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne... We want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Remember that, that whole who's the greatest conversation in the previous chapter? Yeah. This is part two. James and John managed to get Jesus alone. They got him all to themselves, and they're like, please, please, pretty please, Make us number two and number three in your kingdom. We want to sit at the places of honor. We want to be in the first class cabin with you. Everyone else, those other apostles, put them back in coach. Right? Now, a couple of things before we unpack this. First, this is not like just another opportunity to make fun of the apostles, okay? Um, they're easy to make fun of. This is... I believe very strategically placed in the scriptures for us to kind of look in the mirror. I certainly see myself in this story. I'm ashamed to say I see this, I see myself in the story because I'm always looking for special treatment. I'm always looking for how I can get more rights. Now second, and I know I pointed this out before, but I'm just going to point it out every time I see it. It's this. I mean, the credibility of the New Testament, the authentic... Did these stories happen or not? Yes, this is true, okay? And I believe one of the reasons we can know that the New Testament, the gospel stories, are true is they share information like this which is not flattering. The very people who would have had to have invented these stories, made up these stories, uh, the very people who were the leaders of the church in the first century, they don't look very good here. You with me? They look petty. They look selfish. They look overly ambitious. They don't come off looking good at all. It's not the kind of stuff you would put into the New Testament if you're trying to make up a brand new religion and convince everybody this is the best religion. It is exactly the kind of stuff you would expect to see in a story if it's true. If you actually have had 12 dudes who are fishermen and tax collectors, just regular guys traveling around with the Son of God, now that's the kind of stuff you would expect to see. Who's the greatest? Can I be number one and can my brother be number two in your kingdom? So the Gospels, not works of fiction. They're not made up. You wouldn't 2,000 years ago have made this stuff up. Now back to the big idea here. If you want to follow Jesus, you better get used to serving others. You better look, get used to looking to give other people first class service, not for yourself. Amen? Now look, I always uh, know that here at Preston Crest, I mean, we got 
all kind of people. Some of us are not Christians yet. Some of us have been Christians for decades. Some of us have been Christians for days. But wherever we're at on this journey of following Jesus or deciding whether or not to follow Jesus, I hope that all of us will get to a place at some point where this statement um, defines us, where it becomes central to who we are. Here goes, never eclipse the sun, okay? Never eclipse the sun. Honor Christ by humbly serving others, right? When I'm trying to make myself great, when I'm trying to garner everyone's applause and admiration and make sure that I get the special treatment, then I'm stepping in front of Jesus. And I want to be pointing to Jesus. I want to be pointing people to the sun, not eclipsing the sun. Now, I'm pretty convinced that this is a key strategy here of Satan, of getting us to eclipse the sun, right? I am convinced that Satan wants to do uh, nothing more than get us to think about ourselves, right? Because as long as I'm thinking about myself, and I am determined to make sure that I have my needs met and everybody is respecting me. If I'm thinking about myself, I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking about His kingdom. I'm certainly not thinking about you or other people. So when I show up at church, Satan wants me thinking about the air conditioning, okay? It's just too cold for me. I really wish they'd turn it up or it's too hot for me. When I show up to worship God, I mean, just think about our time here at church, our hour or two a week. When I show up to church, Satan wants me thinking, I don't like the songs John Scott picked out this morning. They're, they're too old, right? Or they're too new. I mean, he wants me to think about my preferences, about my needs, about my wants. He wants me to constantly wonder about, criticize, judge, evaluate how can the Preston Crest Church do a better job of serving my needs. That's what he wants me to think about because that eclipses the Son of God. It eclipses the Christ in the church of Christ. Now, let's talk for a second about how Jesus demonstrated and taught us how to be servants, wholehearted servant leaders. First off, very clear, over and over again, Jesus is constantly trying to show his disciples this is what you need to do. And the first step, guys, is looking in the mirror. The first step is recognizing that there is this dynamic at work within my heart. No es bueno. It's not good. It's not good. I am selfish. So number one on your outline this morning, servant leaders acknowledge that their hearts naturally bend toward selfishness. We get a lot of examples of that in Scripture. Here is one of them in chapter 9, verse 34. They, the disciples, had been arguing about, consumed with, which one of them was the greatest. That is their topic for conversation. And again, these stories are not here for us to pick on the disciples. They are here so that the Holy Spirit can convict us, can confront us, can teach us, can lovingly nudge us to look in the mirror and see ourselves in these gentlemen. We all have a natural inclination to think first of ourselves and our situations. Um, 
in the first shall be last kingdom, we are called to reverse that. A guy named Leonard Bernstein, famous, world-famous conductor. Um, one time somebody asked him, so Mr. Bernstein, in the orchestra, what is the most difficult instrument to play? He should know. He'd worked with all kinds of musicians of all kinds of ages. What is the most difficult instrument to play? Without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. <laughs> Genius. Second fiddle. He said, I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. The hardest place to be in an orchestra, second chair. And yet that's the key to beautiful music, isn't it? Godly leaders joyfully take the second chair, gladly take last place. And we are called to come to terms with the, the dynamic of selfishness that is at work in our hearts, in our minds, and to stop that spiral of self-centeredness so that we can begin to make an impact for the kingdom and get out of Jesus' way. And also, this is not a huge surprise, nothing earth-shaking here on number two, but we have to recognize this isn't normal. You know this, all right? This is different. This is not the way the world normally works. So number two, servant leaders know that the humble spirit of Christ is at odds with the proud spirit of this world. Verses 42 to 43 in chapter uh, 10, we're going to see these two systems, the world system and the kingdom at odds with each other. Jesus says the rulers in this world, the powerful people, the great people in this world, they lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority. But among you, it will be... Yes, among you it will be different. Preston Crest, here it's going to be different. In the family of God, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be different. And number three, and this I think is so key to the whole thing, servant leaders understand that selflessness, selflessness builds unity while selfishness breeds mistrust, hostility, and dysfunction. Right? I mean, we see that here in chapter 10, verse 41. James and John slip into the side conversation with Jesus. Can we be number two and number three in your kingdom? And here's what happens. When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. In other words, they got hacked off. They're like, really, guys? trying to cut in front of us, trying to occupy the big positions and leave us behind. I mean, they are hacked off that this power grab behind their back was being made by these brothers. All of a sudden, in the ministry of Jesus, you've got dysfunction, you've got some hostility going on, right? So here's a real key. If we're going to take on this me-first culture around us, um, we have to just 
not only know this truth, but we've got to cherish this truth. Here goes number four. Servant leaders recognize that humility is found in very powerful people. In fact, I would say true humility, you find it only in very powerful people. Verse 43, whoever, Jesus said, wants to become great among you must serve the rest like a servant. You've got to be great to pull this off. Jesus, who is he? We believe Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We believe that Jesus is the CEO of the entire universe. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. And we believe that Jesus left heaven to come to earth to serve. Philippians 2 talks about this move he made into our neighborhood, okay? It says in verse 7, He, Jesus, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He came to love on people. He came to, to meet their needs. He came to touch the leopard. He, leopard. he came to... He came to to hold the child. He came to wash the stinking feet of these same 12 guys who were constantly arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Truly great and truly powerful people know how to serve, just like Jesus. Rick Warren said this, Jesus measured greatness in terms of service, not status. God determines your greatness by how many people you serve, not how many people serve you. I got to meet up with an old friend this week again. Had coffee at Starbucks down at uh, Forest and Preston. His name is Celestin. He is Rwandan. He is the leader of a ministry uh, that in Africa to train pastors, to train Christian leaders, and to bring reconciliation because there are all sorts of fights and tribal wars and disagreement, religious wars. And so he works in five different countries. And, and we were just talking about that. Um, his family isn't the same. In Rwanda, he, his father was killed in the genocide. Five other family members, they thought that his mother had been killed in the genocide back in 2011. But um, she actually had hidden herself under a pile of bodies and they only found out she was alive a few months later so now he's going to these and, and I was asking him about Sudan because they're doing a lot of work in Sudan and you remember Darfur the Darfur region which is still a complete mess and now there's an independent Christian uh, Christian nation in the south South Sudan divided along religious lines North Sudan is Muslim South Sudan is Christian and so the, the government it's, in fact in, in Khartoum and the government there in Sudan he, he has the only Christian organization that's allowed to legally operate because the government so values the work he does in bringing people together and reconciling so I was just asking so what is that like going in there as a Rwandan how do you how do you serve how do you teach there how do you bring people together and he said well he said, let me tell you about a conference I had a couple of years ago. When in the Darfur region, he said, I had 70 sheikhs and imams, Muslims, 
from Darfur and from Sudan. And then I had 15 pastors from South Sudan. He said, I went in there and I was supposed to talk to them about principles of reconciliation. He said, I walked into the room and he told them his story from Rwanda and how he had lost family members. And he said, I know you guys, all of you have lost someone you love. But you have been so busy leading your communities and taking care of people that you have not been able to stop and mourn. And he said, the first thing I did, Gordon, he said, I told him, for the next hour, room full of Muslims and Christians all together, he said, for the next hour, I said, all we're going to do is cry together. And he said, three hours later, we broke for coffee. Greatness is about serving others, about thinking of their situation, about recognizing what they need and serving them there. Humility is required to do that. And truly great people are the ones who have that humility. It doesn't mean, by the way, humility, we get it wrong, right? A lot of times, we, humility, uh, it means you like hate yourself. It, it means you've got a self-esteem problem. It means you think you're no good at anything. That's what a humble person is. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. Humility is not about denying your strengths. It's about recognizing your weaknesses. All right? C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I like that. But my favorite quote is G.K. Chesterton, who said, Humility is the mother of giants. I like that. Humility is the mother of giants. Finally, number five, servant leaders embrace that ultimately serving others cannot be separated from discipleship, from what it means to follow Jesus. In other words, I can't say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus, but that whole coming in last thing, that whole serving others, that's not for me. I'm only going to take this part of what it means to follow Jesus. You can't do that. It is right at the core of what it means to follow Jesus because it's what he was about. In chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even me, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in a world that values first place, Jesus gets his disciples together and he shares this amazing, stunning secret. The last shall be first. God is going to fill up heaven. That's God's first class. He is going to fill it up with the humble with the people who chose to be last here. And this is the core of the gospel, the good news. Jesus left heaven, moved into our neighborhood to serve us. And one of the ways he did that is he died for you on the cross. He wasn't crucified for his crimes. He wasn't crucified for his sins. He was crucified for your sins. Because he knew you had a problem that you could not deal with on your own. You could not take care of that debt of sin. But he loves you. And he wants you to be with him. 
in heaven and here. And so he took your place, gave his life for you. He died on a cross for you. Will you be a disciple of Jesus? Pick up your cross, follow him, and serve others the way he served you and continues to serve you. Maybe this morning for you it just means crossing that line of faith. It means saying yes to Jesus, saying, I want to follow you. I want to accept what you did for me on the cross, and I want to live like that. I want to find true greatness in serving you and serving others. You can do that by confessing your faith in Jesus, by being baptized into the name of Jesus, starting that life, forgiven, fresh, new, loved by the Father, uh, inhabited by his Holy Spirit. You could do that this morning. Or maybe this morning, you know, we're calling 2017 the year of reaching up in prayer. And we're trying as a church family not to leave any prayers unprayed that we need to be praying. And we're seeing some amazing results as well. So maybe it's just getting together with somebody before you leave this room and praying that prayer that the Lord has put on your heart this morning, whatever that is. However you need to respond, do that as we stand together and as we worship.